I was telling the praise band that I had to apologize to them because uh, I'm filling in for Jeff, but I can't play the guitar. <laughs> so, uh, and you ought to be glad that I don't. <laughs> I don't even try. But uh, I'm glad to be here this morning, and I want to thank you, uh, Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, for accepting Margie and me and, and many others. You know, I thought about the fact that um, Rocky Mount Church, a long time ago, what, maybe 30 years, sent a core group to Franklin Heights to start Franklin Heights Baptist Church. And I think that today there's an analogy, and that is that the core group at Rocky Mount Baptist Church is restarting Rocky Mount Baptist Church. And aren't you glad to be a part of it? I think in a lot of churches you have people that that are, sometimes they say lifetime members, and I don't think that's possible because we're, we're born sinners and we have to be born again and then become a member of the church. But uh, there are a lot of people who have been a member here for as long as they can remember. And we appreciate uh, your openness and your willingness to accept us. And that's what it's going to take. For this church, not only to survive, but to uh, to excel and to uh, fill up the rest of the room. I've been here at times when there was room enough here for everybody to lay down and take a nap. How about you? <laughs> That's been a while, but things are changing, aren't they? And uh, we're just glad to be here and uh, appreciate your being welcome, welcoming us and and opening your heart to us. But I want to talk to you this morning about um, when silence is yellow. I want to talk a little bit, and then I want to preach a little bit. But, uh, you know, we want peace everywhere, don't we? We want it here at home. We want it around the world. But if by peace we mean compromise with injustice and immorality, being silent because we don't have the inner strength to... Uh, speak out against wrongs, this is not peace. It's a farce and a hoax. History teaches us when people cease to care enough to fight for their freedoms, their society is on the way out. When they lose their ability to take a risk, and to accept the challenge to make their communities safe and free, they can't last very long. Rome was dead inwardly long before Nero played his fiddle. They were dead inwardly. Um, the flames that destroyed them had been smoldering on the inside. There were flames of... Uh, of lust and immorality, uh, lack of respect for the people of God. That's been going on for a long time. But when people, this is what I want to say, when people lose their ideals and have stopped fighting for them, their country is doomed. We have ideals. There are not many people fighting for them. The middle 
road philosophy today says, keep quiet. Don't get involved. Let somebody else do it. Well, the conclusion is that we have moral laryngitis. I think there's a rising fear about the crime rate in our country. Threatens us and every country in the free world. And it's here that we find ourselves sick with moral laryngitis. Many, if they speak out at all, want to do it anonymously. Recently, I called one of the departments in our county government, and I had a complaint. And they wanted to know if I wanted them to look into it anonymously. And I said, I said no. But the point is that in the area of social evil, morality is not Christian. Neutrality, rather, is not Christian. Whether we like it or not, we are involved, for better or for worse. As much as we would like to avoid any kind of involvement personally, our silence makes us guilty. Because as the saying goes, silence gives consent. You recall that Stephen, when he was being martyred, Saul of Tarsus later become the great Paul that we know, writer of much of the New Testament. Paul didn't throw any stones, but he was guilty because he stood by while others did it. The scriptures tell us that he was consenting unto Stephen's death. Because the ordinary Christian in the United States is silent, and the ordinary citizen is noncommittal, the atmosphere of our society is going the way of tyranny. I believe, and many of you I think would agree with me, that our government is constantly trampling upon our Constitution. And I think that we act sometimes like those who live where if somebody protests, they're in deep trouble. Here in the West, we boast that we have freedom of speech. And we do have it. And it's good. It sounds good. But freedom of speech means nothing to people who are too weak, and their convictions to speak out against the evil that's eating us, eating at the very heart of our nation, like the worst kind of cancer. You know, there's some lessons we can learn from the past. The early Americans were angry, disturbed, articulate people, courageous people. They, their enemy was tyranny, prejudice, intolerance, and injustice. But we know that they were angry enough to talk about it. And not only that, they were angry enough to do something about it. So we know that it wasn't the fearful people who made this country as the great country it is today, but the courageous people. 
They were the ones that changed this wilderness into this great nation that we know today. Let me ask you this question. Where are we now? Where are we now? You see, democracy, you'll see that quote in the bulletin, democracy is not the opiate of the people as is once called by communists. Democracy is the moral stimulation that goads people into expressing themselves and acting as they should. Free people should never be content to be cowardly, conformed, or handicapped. John Adams, our second president, said this, Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to reserve our freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I took pains to preserve it. I guess there are some veterans that could say the same thing. People who put their lives on the line for our freedom, and we just let people take it away. We let the federal government tell us what to do. We tell, let the state government tell us what to do. We let the president change the, the Obamacare law 30 times, all by himself. It was a law. But he changed it 30 times. But it's not only in the social and political arena of American life that we are afraid. I think it's also true in our religious convictions. We're afraid to speak out in that area as well. I think one of the most dramatic and admirable pictures in church history is that of Martin Luther, who was the father of Protestantism. You see, until Martin Luther made his decision upon reading in the Bible, he was a Catholic monk, and he read in the Bible that salvation is by faith and faith alone. Now, he was a monk in the Catholic Church, The Catholic Church taught that salvation was in the church. Um, One of the things that they felt was a mortal sin was divorce. But if you had enough money, you could go to the right people and pay the right amount of money and you could be forgiven. Everybody wanted to be a part of the Roman Catholic Church. This included kings and the royalty. You know, if they wanted a divorce, if they wanted to have an affair, they knew it was sin, but they could go to the right people and have it forgiven. So the the Roman Catholic Church was uh, corrupt. Martin Luther read that salvation is by faith and faith alone. And he went to a cathedral and nailed a thesis on the door. And basically it said, salvation is by faith alone. But this is what Martin Luther said when he was confronted by those who were trying him at the Diet of Worms. He said, God help me, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. He took a stand. He took a stand. And uh, 
That's important. It's important, I think, that we take a stand. But many of us that admire Martin Luther don't have the nerve to open our mouths about issues that are just as important as those faced by Martin Luther. Abortion on demand, sanctity of marriage, a woman to a man. You know, this is the big issue today, same-sex marriage. God created man and woman, and he told man and woman to recreate. I want to ask you this question. Is it possible for a woman and another woman to recreate? Is it possible for a man and another man to recreate? No. We, we talk about gay and lesbian, transgenders. You know, God hates sin. Homosexuality in the Bible is clearly a sin, and God hates it. But God loves the sinners. I love the sinners. But let's face it. Let's be honest. Gay, lesbian, whatever you want to call them, whatever they want to call themselves. I don't think the gay people are really very gay. They're not very happy because they know they're different. Not just different, but I think inside they know what they're doing is wrong. See, God created man and woman, gave us sexual organs. Let's just be honest out in the open. And he gave them to us to recreate. Now, I think orgasms are frosting on the wedding cake. How about that? But you see, orgasms is what it's all about with the homosexual community. You believe that? That's the truth. That's what it's all about. And they are not many, but they're loud. And they are forcing the community to accept them. Ministers are free to perform marriages as they will. There are some people who come to, have come to me and asked me to perform a wedding for them, and I said no. Not many, but some. But you know it's coming, the day is coming when ministers are going to be forced to ask God to, to bless what he hates. That day is coming. It's not far away, believe me, when ministers will have no choice but to ask God to bless what he hates. You know, I think that on many, many fronts, we have become like sticks stacked up before a bonfire. We're standing together, yet we are incapable or unwilling to stand alone. We are living example of a, the misuse of the concept that in unity there is strength and in individuality there's weakness. We seem to have lost the fortitude or the motivation, if you will, to stand alone even on moral issues, even on spiritual issues. I think that I have heard that many churches, when they get ready to call a pastor, some of the leaders will say to another, is he safe? 
Now, you may wonder, what does that mean? Is he safe? Well, that means, is he controversial? Is he going to disturb the status quo? Is he kind going to try to arouse us from our apathy, our sleepiness? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's the kind of pastor we've got? I don't think our pastor is safe, do you? <laughs> and praise God for that. Well, vice president of a public relations firm in New York said, said, I think that a layman has the right to expect moral and ethical leadership from his minister. I don't believe the average person has respect for a reed swaying in the wind. Rather, he's looking for a minister who stands for something, knows what he stands for, and does not hesitate to speak out. Does that sound like someone we know? Well, let me preach now, if I may. I've done enough meddling, right? You're turning your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter, chapter 16. I want to read a few verses there. If you'll stand together with me, give you a break as we honor God's word. Verse 21 of chapter 16 says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, then be raised from the dead. Then Peter took him aside and said to him, began to rebuke him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is the background of what he's saying. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in glory, the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to our hearing and our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Peter said these things in the flesh. There were two positions that Peter took here. One was a a mountaintop experience when he confessed that Jesus Christ was the Lord. The valley was when he rebuked Jesus. Peter, like you and I, was human. This was in Peter's pre Spirit-filled state. He was not, um, you'll excuse me if I'm not used to this newfangled gadget. Been preaching for 45 years, I've never done this before. (laughs) But uh, 
Jeff seems to manage this thing pretty well. <laughs> but uh, I was talking about two two different positions of Peter. The one position he said when he when Peter said that he was the Christ, Jesus said that was revealed to him by the Father. The second statement when he rebuked Jesus, Jesus rebuked Satan. So Satan was the inspiration for Peter's statement in rebuking Jesus. But as I said, this was Peter's pre-spirit-filled position. You see, we're not there with Peter. We're there with him humanly. But yet, when Jesus died and rose again, the Holy Spirit came. And he came to indwell us with himself. So we have power that Peter did not have. We have the scriptures that Peter did not have. We have the church that Peter did not have. So there's no reason for us to to have such variation of experiences on the mountaintop and then down in the valley. There ought to be some stability to where we are because we have the scriptures and because we have received the spirit. The scriptures tell us without the spirit, there's no salvation. You may be a member of the church, but if you've never received the spirit of God, then you're not a child of God. You may be a member of the church, but unless you've been born again, Born again, the word means from above. You are natural person. When you're born again, you are a born again person. Born of the Spirit. So we don't have the excuses that, uh, that Peter had. When we uh, make our confession, it ought to be from the heart. It ought to be from the Spirit. But I think that what Jesus is talking about here, this, this cross-bearing, this cross-bearing. You know, I think an evidence of cross-bearing is going against a popular, politically correct opinion when it's wrong. Now, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, you may not ever heard from him, but for a long time he was on television every Sunday morning with his robe and, and all of this. One thing that I agree with him on is this. He said, right is right and wrong is wrong if everybody is wrong. You hear that? Right is right and wrong is wrong if everybody is wrong. People are telling us now today that we are narrow-minded. Well, praise God. The Bible tells us that broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to the Lord. Some things that we, we can't compromise on. We're told that we must, but in a democracy, I don't think they can say that we must unless we all agree on it. And sometimes when we all agree on everything, something, that doesn't do it either. But they're hypocrites. 
They're fakers, they're phonies, they're bigots, extremists, homosexuals. All of these are talking. And they're loud. They are the vocal minority and they are overruling the silent majority because we do not speak out, because we do not take a stand. You know, according to historical records, it doesn't take a lot of people to change the trend of events. A few people who know what they believe and are unafraid to express it can change the world. They can do what bombs and armies cannot. We have in our hands the most potent weapon God has ever given to man, freedom of speech. Millions have died to pass on this priceless treasure. In the early days of our republic, when they were putting together the Declaration of Independence, men were asked to sign it. One man, Charles Carroll, came to sign it. Now, these men, when they signed this document, they knew that they were putting not only their life in peril, but the possibility that they could lose all of their possessions. And someone asked, will anyone know which Charles Carroll is signing this document? There's so many named Charles Carroll in Maryland and other places. And Carroll said, said this, he said, well, let there be no mistake. And he signed in bold letters, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. He was a man of conviction. Now, stand and be counted. Once again, we need to stand up and be counted or evil in its many forms, will take this country over. Once more, we need to add the name, our names, to some ideals, convictions, and beliefs. A not-so-well senator named Edwin G. Ross was asked how he was going to vote in the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson was not one of his favorite men. He was not even of the same political party. But he was a man of conviction. And his vote was a deciding vote whether to impeach or not to impeach. And he stood silently and said, not guilty. And the president was not impeached. Now, today... The cross is an accepted symbol of love and sacrifice. But in that day, the cross was a terrible means of capital punishment. The cross was such a dirty word that Romans wouldn't say it in public society. No Roman could be crucified. This terrible death was reserved for their enemies. Jesus had not yet specifically stated that he would be crucified. He did that later on in Matthew chapter 20. But his words 
emphasize the cross. He presented the disciples two approaches to life. Deny yourself or live for yourself. Take up your cross or ignore the cross. Follow Christ or follow the world. Lose your life for his sake or save your life for your own sake. Forsake the world. Gain the world. Keep your soul. Lose your soul. Share his reward and glory or lose his reward and glory. Let me tell you that to deny self doesn't mean to deny things. It means to give yourself wholly to Christ and to share in his shame and death. Paul described this in Romans chapter 12, in the first two verses. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To the Philippians, he said, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. To the Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take up the cross doesn't mean to carry burdens. Do you have problems? Is your asthma, is your poor economic health, arthritis, or some other unpleasant predicament your cross? No, it is not. Biblically, to take up a cross means to identify with Christ in his rejection, shame, suffering, and death. But biblical suffering, hear this now, always leads to glory. This is why Jesus entered this short sermon with a reference to his glorious kingdom. This statement is going to be fulfilled within a week on the Mount of Transfiguration described in the next chapter. Edmund G. Ross is dead. Abe Lincoln and many of the heroes of the past are gone. But the issues are important today as the ones they fought and died for. Those issues are still alive. Take Noah. He stood in his, alone in his generation and lived for God. Think about how he felt when people laughed at him for building the ark. But the scriptures tell us that Noah believed God. Elijah must have been very lonely up there on Mount Carmel. With the king, all its courts. False prophets of Baal against him, yet he stood his ground and believed God and won the day. Gideon could have been a lonely and helpless man. 
here in the middle of the night with only 300 men to do battle against thousands. But Gideon was sure that God was with him, and that was enough to win the battle. How do you suppose Daniel must have been feeling during those times when all of Babylon was materialistic, secularistic, and atheistic? You know, many of his moral choices were made in, in, the, in the dead of the night, lonely, when it seemed like all was lost. But again, God was with him. Amos must have been lonely when he stood before the, the king and the people and he said to them, prepare to meet God. Habakkuk, the prophet on his watchtower, must have been lonely too as he saw his nation about to be destroyed. But I think the loneliest of all was Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, dying for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I've thought often about that, that passage of Scripture, those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus became sin for us. God cannot look upon sin. God had to turn the other way as Jesus was obedient even unto death. Because without his death, we would have no life, no spiritual life. Without his death on the cross, there would be no payment for our sins. We couldn't gather enough money to pay enough priests to forgive us our sins. It is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. No other way. No other way. Not believing in a certain doctrine. Not believing in any, any church doctrine. But by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone. That's, that's the word. Faith alone. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. It, salvation, is the gift of God. He wants to give it to you this morning. You who are here without salvation. One thing I've learned in 45 years of ministry is this. No one ever got saved who was not lost. The starting point, the starting point in your salvation is admitting that you're lost without Jesus Christ. You know that if the world ended today, you would have no hope. The only hope that you have is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And if you believe on that, if you believe him when he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He'll give it to you. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't be bad enough not to deserve it. God loves people. He hates 
our sin. We hate our sin. But God loves you. And he wants you today. If you do not know for certain that when you die, you will pass into heaven. One phase of being into another. Into the heavenly realm. And that's only possible if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's a a gift. It's sort of like if I went to the bank and I, I said... I want to open up an account here for, for Jonathan Sweat. I want to put a thousand dollars in here. <laughs> and I go to Jonathan and I say, Jonathan, I opened an account for you. Thousand dollars is in there. It's all yours. Before Jonathan can get that money, he's got to believe that it's there. And Jonathan has to write a check. Now, Jesus Christ has already opened an account in your name. You've got to believe that it's there. And then you've got to act on it. So that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. To receive what God has given you. It's there waiting for you. You know? John 3.16, what does it say? God so loved the world. That means everybody. Put your name in there. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's there, waiting for you. All you have to do is accept it. You have to repent of your sin, believe what he said, and accept it. You do this in your heart, and I'm going to ask you to do it publicly. To walk down this aisle. To take a stand. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Take a stand. Some of you need to take a stand for Rocky Mount Baptist Church. You've been sitting on the side. Or you've been just thinking about it. I'm asking you to do it today. Take a stand for Jesus Christ. Take a stand for Rocky Mount Baptist Church. Add your name And your influence to those who are doing what they can to win Rocky Mount and Franklin County to Jesus Christ. And to do it today. We're going to sing an invitation. And we're going to ask you to take that stand. And to take it publicly.